This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The good news, the sigh of relief, of course, being felt all over the world is the Berlin attack suspect, the Christmas market uh, terrorist, uh, has been killed by police near Milan, Italy. To get the latest on all of this, David Harris is with us, Insignus Strategic Group, a terrorism expert, and he is with us now. Hello, hello, David. How are you today? Hello, Scott. Doing well, thanks. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, are you surprised how quickly they caught this suspect? Well, uh, one could debate whether this indeed is very quick and uh, whether it's certainly quick enough. When you look at the really mixed history of things on the investigative side, if we recall, this was an individual, according to reports, who had been under serious surveillance as a pretty definite threat back up till about September. And then it appears that surveillance was called off. When you get then into the post-killing phase, in other words, after the truck massacre in Germany, um, there are some interesting investigative questions that arise, one of which would be, how could it have been that in the face of what one could imagine only to have been the most uh, exhaustive manhunt in Germany and across Europe, that this individual would have wound up somehow in Milan, Italy, uh, open borders, anyone? Uh, this, again, will raise some questions about the, uh, the Schengen arrangement within continental Europe, uh, uh, allowing for, of course, the free flow of people and goods, but it also has clear ramifications for uh, the internal security of uh, the European community in general. Beyond that, there will be questions about what this individual, who's the suspected killer driver, may have been doing in the weeks and months before the actual attack, when it was said that he may have gone underground. He seems to have spent a fair amount of time in uh, the northern part of Germany, perhaps near the borderlands of uh, Belgium, and so on. And, of course, the second you mention that, you are perhaps drawn to recollections of the serious problems that Belgium has been having, including interaction of criminal organizations and terror organizations, the terror organizations at least at times, uh, having been reliant on criminal ones for weapons, some of which seem to have come through Belgium. So one can only imagine the complexity of the investigations that will be required, and those investigations may additionally uh, impose on authorities an obligation to figure out, in the face of this large manhunt that we've described, whether there were any Confederates involved that may have assisted in any way the movement of uh, this suspect, now dead, from Germany into Italy. That's obviously my next question. Uh, how did he get from point A to point B, and could he have done that working alone? It is very interesting, and, you know, the question after question naturally arises. One intriguing thing that might seem a little alien to us is the fact that the um, media, and I suppose authorities, were not allowed, as I understand it, by law, German law, to publish photos of the suspects without, I think, his eyes being covered. Uh, they weren't allowed to publish his surname, uh, even as they were engaged in this possibly life-and-death manhunt. Didn't the rest of us see that information? I think ultimately we did, and what appears to have happened, things are a bit sketchy, 
But what appears to have happened is that there may have been a change in German law affected on Wednesday or thereabouts, likely at least in part in relation to this incident, that may then have facilitated what we all eventually saw. But you can see that there would be issues arising here that relate to the capacity of any number of nation states, not necessarily excluding Canada, to come to grips with the reality of what we're facing and how we may have to make some adjustments and allowances in law or elsewhere for that reality. Isn't, uh, David, I'm guessing, though, and I noticed when uh, uh, they had the initial suspect who they let go, they had his head covered as well when he was being taken out in public. Isn't that restrict? Isn't the idea behind restricting ID until they are actually sure of what they're dealing with, as opposed to a suspect? I mean, you can understand how that would would change things on both sides of this discussion. Absolutely. I mean, this is yes. It's very clear what the intention is, and in its own way, it reflects the height of civilization, where uh, there's an attempt to recognize that people who have not been convicted of anything, perhaps not even been charged with anything. Um, have to go on with their lives and uh, may indeed ultimately prove to have been innocent. So this uh, seems to be an attempt in part to ensure that they not be smeared, their good name not be besmirched, at least unnecessarily, given the necessities of uh, complicated proceedings. But again, this is what brings us back to this whole challenge and problem. Mm. Uh, at what point uh, do we, are we forced to uh, admit that we may find that some of these admirable uh, motivations and even policies or laws uh, may have a less and less uh, appropriate place, shall we say, in the broader system, in counterterrorism or other terms? Uh, these, are, of course, as you know, are not by any means the kinds of things we do in Canada and generally in the West. If you have a photo of a suspect, then in general, again, and I'm generalizing, uh, you might expect to see the photo published. You would certainly, if uh, there be a general justification, see the surname published. How do we know they got the right person? Well, another good question, especially when you uh, noted the initial foul-up, when uh, uh, the wrong individual, as the authorities seem to have conceded, was uh, grabbed and uh, interrogated. Indeed, I, I think flown a considerable distance to be interrogated after his capture, and uh, only to prove uh, innocent. So uh, at this point, it's going to be a matter of forensics. I think they have uh, been satisfied from what reports tell us that the DNA of this suspect was found on or and or, and or around the um, uh, uh, controls of the vehicle that was involved in the killings. And uh, indeed, that in itself in, seems to have involved a, a ghoulish uh, bloodshedding situation. As we remember, the apparent operator of the vehicle, the proper legal operator, mm -hmm. a Polish gentleman, seems to have been killed in the process, and the suspicion and theory is that the vehicle was hijacked and that the driver was in the process of all that killed, uh, perhaps even during the mass murder that was being undertaken by the other fellow who seems to have been at the controls. Uh, will we see uh, Will we see borders solidified? How does Germany move forward with this? Well, what we're going to be seeing is uh, perhaps a, a continuing, uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration at this point, to say a crisis of confidence 
in public authority. Recall that this situation certainly doesn't uh, unfold and unwind in a vacuum. We've seen the highest authorities of uh, a nation state uh, waving in well over a million people, many of whom seem quite obviously and overtly to be coming from jurisdictions that are fraught with problems of an overtly terrorist nature. So if you're looking at that, and there, remember, we're simply talking about religious violence. We're not even exploring the lesser but chronic and maybe in some ways fatal issue of ideological extremism, where you may not have, for the time being, immediately violent behavior, but you could be seeing propagated within a new country, such as Germany, uh, ideologies, uh, in this case uh, Islamism, that uh, could cause division and ultimately provide motivation for the very kind of violence we've heard about. So there seem to be increasing numbers of people in Europe in general who are wondering whether their best security interests are being served by the decisions of some of their own leadership, and of course not just in Germany. And with that, then, can come all kinds of things, including polarizing of people according to ethnicity, race, religion, and so on. And uh, maybe some of the political outcomes that have been hinted at elsewhere in the world, where we've seen established uh, liberal democracy or democratic governments overthrown by uh, other liberal democratic uh, tendencies, but ones that have been more focused and preoccupied with uh, actual and immediate safety concerns. Uh, one last question. What criteria is used to determine whether a person should continue to be followed or not? Obviously, this person was initially and then surveillance had stopped. How do you balance that? Yes, well, it will vary according to the country and jurisdiction and even according to the uh, security and or law enforcement organization involved. Some will talk about uh, reasonable suspicion, reasonable grounds to suspect, reasonable grounds to believe. And again, all that's going to be in turn tied in to the legal regime of the country, including any constitutional obligations. So, uh, you know, generally an intelligence service will, for example, have a broader mandate in that regard than a police service, because, of course, police are ordinarily involved in law enforcement with direct consequences for the as they say in our law, the freedom of the subject, the freedom of the individual. Um, whereas on the general intelligence side, you may be able to keep an eye on someone without a view to actual prosecution. So all these things will vary, and that can introduce some levels of confusion where you find, uh, because you have different organizations within the same country uh, operating on the basis of uh, different uh, burdens and onuses and so on, uh, challenges here and there. So uh, that's all got to be sorted out. And it's very tricky because, uh, you know, even in the case of situations where you have individuals who, for good reason, perhaps have been arrested and then charged, um, what happens if they be convicted? You know, if they're connected to a lethal ideology and have been taken over by it, um, what does it mean if they be sentenced ultimately, if they're convicted, to two years or ten years? Hmm. Could they still be absolute bloody menaces even after all of that? How would you constitutionally manage the continuing threat under law? 
David Harris has been with us in Cygnus Strategic Group, terrorism expert. David, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a happy holiday. Yes, uh, Merry Christmas to you. Take care, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. uh, President-elect Trump tweeted comments briefly calling for the U.S. to, quote, greatly strengthen uh, strengthen and expand its nuclear capability until the rest of the world comes to its senses in regard to nuclear weapons. To talk more about all of this, Simon Palomar is with us, research assistant, uh, Center for International Governance Innovation, and he is with us now. Hello, Simon. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm well. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time at this time of year. We really do appreciate this. Uh, Simon, the uh, the Democrats said long before the election that they uh, were cautioning about having Trump so close to the trigger of nuclear weapons. Were they right here? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question because uh, this is, of course, unprecedented. Never before I have I seen an American president or president-elect uh, opine on changes to U.S. nuclear policy on Twitter. Uh, I don't think that this is necessarily uh, a matter uh, of alarm like Democrats hinted at during the campaign. During the campaign, of course, it was always the language they like to use was, was, do you want this guy to have his finger on the nuclear button? Do you want this man to have access to the nuclear code? The, the suggestion being that he's not experienced enough and that he's too temperamental be trusted with nuclear weapons and that he would use them in a fit of rage. But I don't think that's what we're facing here. So, uh, you know, the the rhetoric is wrong in that regard. But this is nonetheless uh, uh, an interesting and somewhat concerning turn of events because when it comes to nuclear policy in the United States, uh, it's always been an area of national security policy where presidents, and their advisors, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, are very, very, very careful about how they phrase things, how what messages they send. And it's always done very deliberately, carefully, and slowly, and not on a spur of the moment. So how do we tell when the president-elect is serious or he's just goofing? That's uh, really, I mean, that's the proverbial $64,000 question right now. Uh and I think uh, it's uh, it's very difficult. This is going to be something that not just uh, commentators in the United States and uh, politicians in the House of Representatives and Senate are going to have to figure out. This is something that uh, foreign governments who are monitoring uh, uh, the U.S. President's Twitter account, who uh, are trying to pay attention to what he's saying, uh, that they're going to have to figure out. And, you know, right now my feeling is that when you look at where Donald Trump really does get passionate, where he seems to actually possess his own ideas, um, and rather than just simply uh, relying on advisors or whatnot, is are on issues like trade and immigration. He seems to feel very passionately about them. On an issue like uh, America's nuclear weapons, what kind of posture the United States should take with its nuclear weapons, throughout the campaign he seemed kind of not fully informed, and, and not particularly engaged or interested. This wasn't something that really, uh, you know, stirred his passions and got him fired up. So right now, my rule of thumb is if it's trade or immigration, he's serious. If it's other things, who knows? It might just be him testing the waters. But that is admittedly a very, uh, a very 
uh, it's, it's early days for that theory, and we haven't really borne it out yet. So uh, this, twi- this tweet came hours after Putin said uh, that he was strengthening his country's nuclear capabilities. Is he just reacting to anything Putin says? I think there might be an element of that. I mean, uh, the, the Trump camp, as we've seen the last few weeks, has been very sensitive about the Russia issue. Uh, as I've said before, there seems to be a consensus about amongst practically everybody in the U.S. intelligence community, in the U.S. Senate, in the House of Representatives, in the Obama White House, that you know Russia intervened in the U.S. election with the goal of helping out Donald Trump, and the Trump campaign has denied that. They seem at this point, I think, to be very sensitive about the suggestion that Russia's uh, intelligence services intervened to help him. So this might be a way to sort of demonstrate, well, no, I'm tough on Russia. I'm not Vladimir Putin, blocky. Uh, Putin, you know, is not my friend. I'm going to stand up for America's interests. So when Vladimir Putin says something about nuclear weapons, Trump then feels the need to respond. The challenge there is that Vladimir Putin often talks about Russia's nuclear arsenal and talks about new developments, new technologies they're trying out. Uh, so with Vladimir Putin, it's very normal to hear this coming out of the Kremlin. So any one time that he talks about nuclear weapons, it doesn't make the news because it, he talks about them practically every week. Well, that's why but SNL. That's why SNL portrays this guy as somebody without a shirt. I mean, that's the whole. That's the whole deal. Well, he's a macho man. Vladimir Putin likes to portray. Yeah, give that image. He goes hunting. Yeah. He fishes. He uh, goes into the wilds of Siberia and shoots a, a leopard, a snow leopard with tranquilizer gun, uh, visits nuclear missile bases, talks about, you know, nuclear missiles, gets uh, photos of himself uh, in uh, flight suits flying Russian combat aircraft. It's very much part of his persona and his image. Therefore, it's not surprising what he does it. And therefore, analysts don't pay as much attention to it. So is it up to Trump's staff to decode whatever he says or what he really means? I mean, after this comment, staff were saying, well, he doesn't really, he's not really uh, talking about Russia here. He's talking about rogue countries that might have nuclear capabilities. Uh, is it always the staff that has to go up and clean out, uh, go out and clean up the spilt milk? Well, I think for the time being, that's how it's going to be. Until, uh, until President-elect Trump sort of gets into his groove and figures out if this is how he's going to govern, it's going to be uh, until everybody understands that, you know, because this might just be what we should expect for the next four years, is this sort of uh, policy by spur-of-the-moment pronouncement. Um, until we're used to that, it might be uh, the job of his advisors to, to make sense of it. And, uh, and on something like, you know, nuclear weapons and questions about how many nuclear weapons should the United States have, how should they deploy them, what should be the rules for, you know, God forbid if they have to use them, how would they do so? You know, it's not good when the the president of the most powerful nation in the world says one thing, and then you have to go to his assistants to ask them, well, what did he really mean? In a crisis, you don't want to have to do that. You want one head of state to be able to talk to another head of state, and you want them to be very clear with each other. And this is you know, been the tradition in the United States. Kennedy did it with Khrushchev. Uh, Nixon did it with Brezhnev. Reagan did it with Gorbachev when it came to matters of life and death and how the two countries would deploy their nuclear weapons. So it's really not, uh, you know, it might be okay for other policy areas, but on this one, the president really should be crystal clear about what he means. He shouldn't have to ask his, uh, his 
one of his former campaign managers, well, what did he really mean when he said this? To, to me, Simon, this guy is just an impeachment waiting to happen. I mean, because he and, and, and just because of his own doing, I mean, does he not realize, for example, on Twitter, he can't make comments about Boeing or other companies like that as it drives their stock up or down? Same thing when it comes to the security of the country. I mean, this is all stuff that could get him in, in a huge amount of hot water in the future. Well, I think you're right. It's one of the challenges that he is going to face, and the rest of the United States is going to face, at least in the early days of his presidency. I mean, I think it's always worth remembering that this guy really made his reputation and his money when he became a showman, when he got on TV. He did reality TV. He turned it into spectacle, and he was able to leverage his brand into the, you know, a a spectacular, you know, over-the-top, you know, display of wealth. And that's how he operated on the campaign. It was showmanship. He's going to have to eventually shift to another gear if he's going to be successful as a president, dial down the showmanship and dial up the substance. So whether or not it's going to lead to him being impeached, I mean, that's a hard, that's a hard prediction to make because impeachment is fundamentally a political process. It's the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives that determines if a president gets impeached. And right now, they're all Republicans who are very happy to have somebody who's at least a Republican in name. But in the, the end, at the, the end of the day, Simon, is this not going to get him in some sort of legal hot water? I mean, over and above him being the president, he ju- he can't go out and continue to break law. I don't know if it's breaking a law, but in the end, I mean, I'm sure it would be a very ugly lawsuit. Well, I suspect that it's going to be more complicated than people are are, are saying. Uh, and I'll just use the example of his recent tweets about Lockheed Martin and Boeing. Right. Lockheed Martin is developing the F-35 combat aircraft in the United States. Very expensive. It's been a bit of a boondoggle, but the project is going ahead. Boeing rides, you know, an alternative aircraft. Trump suggests, well, you know, I can talk with Boeing, and I'm the president-elect, and they can give us a, just as good an aircraft for cheaper, and I can say this on Twitter, and people snap their attention. The fact is, whether you're president or not, if you try to break contracts that have been in the works and been on the books for you know, 10 years or 15 or 20 years, the United States government is going to get sued to the hilt by, you know, defense contractors who have been wronged. So this might make for good media. It might grab attention. But I think you're absolutely right in that at a certain point, push will come to shove. And uh, the U.S. government is not simply the president, but it's, in fact, all these departments, all these personnel and all these laws which the U.S. government needs to abide by. If it's like, and we've had this discussion before, Simon, but if it's like this now, what's it going to be like once he is officially the president? Well, I mean, the hope is, you know, frankly speaking, is that that he will, you know, it's it's hard to say it about a a 70-year-old man, but that he will mature. You know, that's a valid point, Simon, but he's all of a sudden now talking about nukes. So it doesn't seem to be going, it doesn't seem to be subsiding. He seems to be ramping it up. Yeah, that's why I said the hope is that he'll mature. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, that, and that's where it will get thorny. I mean, every new politician has uh, can have a pretty rough ride when they, you know, have their first, you know, major summit or meeting, you know, with a, with a head of state or with uh, the governors, premiers, wherever country you're in. Um, so, you know, I guess for the time being, I would say everybody should fasten their seatbelts. It could get rocky. and But uh, let's hope that when struck with the magnitude of the issues, he'll 
dig down deep and figure out how to how to work in a way that uh, that's constructive rather than distracting. That being said, you know I think you're right. We keep on hoping that it's we're going to see some improvement, and uh, if there is any improvement, it's very slow. And things like tweeting about nuclear weapons policy on the fly, I mean, is a big step backwards. <laughs> Um, what he said in regard to uh, greatly strengthening and expanding nu- nuclear capability, uh, did it need to be said? Is it common sense or is it just, I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt here, or is it just, you know, reckless rhetoric? Well, there's two ways to interpret it. If it's interpreted simply as uh, the United States needs to continue to maintain its nuclear arsenal, maybe uh, improve the, uh, the existing weapons, to ensure they still work, uh, continue to acquire uh, new submarines, for example, to replace the old submarines that launched the that launched uh, nuclear ballistic missiles, then that's actually just a continuation of U.S. policy. Even Barack Obama, who you know seems to be personally very opposed to nuclear weapons, and does and thinks the United States should, uh, you know, he personally thinks the United States probably should get rid of them in the future if it can. Even Barack Obama said, nevertheless, until we get rid of them, we have to maintain that deterrent. We have to make sure the technology works. We have to make sure we can deliver those. However, if on the other hand, he meant the United States needs more nuclear weapons and should be building more, this would actually be a disruption of U.S. policy going back to uh, the president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in the late 1960s. Since then, the United States has been slowly whittling down the size of its arsenal. So if he meant the second, that the United States needs to suddenly start building more nuclear weapons and stockpile more of them, that would be a tremendous break in policy. And that would really catch the attention of the Kremlin, of Beijing, uh, of uh, the generals in Pakistan, of the government of India. And that would uh, raise some alarm bells and cause them to start thinking about, you know, how they're conducting their, uh, how they're developing their nuclear policy if the United States is going down this path. You know, Simon, maybe it's a good thing that he's using Twitter the way he is because it simply only allows him to use 140 characters and not really explain what he's doing and leaves him ample room for, you know, the aides to fill in the blanks. It's probably better that way. If he was allowed more than 140 characters, then it would be really scary. He could do some real damage, perhaps. Yeah. So, uh, so the feeling was was that Obama was too passive. You know, Russia, everybody was kind of walking all over them. Is this the talk that you the U.S. needs? Does this kind of talk, the tough talk, the bull in the china shop, does it have a purpose here? Will he get results here just by appearing to be more of a more of a threat, more of a, a strength? I don't know. Pick your word. I think uh, I think what you're referring to almost is, was was Richard Nixon's madman theory, where he wanted to convince the USSR that he was willing to take extreme measures to end the Vietnam War. And there is evidence that you know, being unpredictable, being a bit mad, a bit crazy, or at least having your adversaries think you are, that you know that can work. That can work. But the problem is, once they figure out you're not mad, you're yeah. not crazy, mm-hmm. you're not actually going to do rash things because you're having a bad day or just to prove a point, then the, you know, like we used to say, the jig is up, the show's over, they've called your bluff. So this might work, I think, uh, you know, for a while. It'll it'll certainly uh, catch the attention of policymakers in Russia and China, for example. But once you figure out that this is his style, 
his, you know, this is how he does things. Like I said before, Vladimir Putin likes to talk about nuclear weapons all the time. So, well, that's just part of Vladimir Putin doing his thing. If Donald Trump likes to fly off the handle and change, you know, 70 years of American policy on the fly, and then he, he says that, but then he doesn't follow through, then you know that's his style, and it, it loses its effect. Uh, before all, it just seemed only a week or so ago uh, that Trump was buddy buddies with Russia, that, you know, his Exxon friend who who had won the highest uh, non-civilian honor from Russia, all of these relations, people are wondering what the heck's going on. You're talking to a man who's this, that and the other. Um, so it seemed like we were in bed with Russia or the United States was in bed with Russia. What happens now? Are we are we buddies with Russia or not? What is the relationship now? Well, uh, that's uh, how would I answer that? I think the <laughs> fact is, uh, you know, Donald Trump was elected. Donald Trump might have relatively warm feelings about Vladimir Putin compared to how Barack Obama talked about him. But the fact is, um, America's interests in the world haven't changed overnight, and nor have Russia's. They, you know, they still on certain issues don't see eye to eye, and in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, there are still plenty of people who are very distrustful of Russia and uh, and very willing to uh, to challenge Russia's foreign policy in Eastern Europe, for example. So I think we're probably closer to, you know, the status quo of Russia and the United States looking at each other rather suspiciously, working together when they need to, working together when it's both in their interests, but looking at each other with uh, a good deal of suspicion. And I think uh, that will continue. Donald Trump might be able to make some changes at the margins. You know, he might be able to, to uh, you know, have a good personal relationship between two leaders never hurts, but it doesn't change the fundamental facts, which is that on a lot of issues, the two countries are simply at loggerheads. And uh, now that Trump, you know, sort of crossed the, the nuclear Rubicon, so to speak, hmm. I think uh, his advisors... You know, some of the very some of the very smart people who's put in this cabinet, like General James Mattis. I mean, they'll bring to attention the the depths of the disagreements between Russia and the United States, and there wasn't be one of them. Uh, remember back to uh, Reagan's era, and you know, tear down this wall. I mean, by the end of it all, Gorby and Reagan had a pretty good relationship, uh, yeah. and, and broke down a lot of walls. Could you see this happening with Putin and Trump? I mean. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. It's not really clear, you know, how the two men really feel about themselves because they've never really met for any extended period of time. But, uh, for example, a friendly relationship between the two men could be useful for resolving some issues. And, and that's really important to remember because Russia and the United States and the Soviet Union before it was Russia and the United States didn't become friends because uh, Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan were friends. They still disagreed tremendously, but they were able to work on the really nasty issues that caused them to nearly come to blows. So it certainly would be, I think, a good thing if Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump got along personally, even if Russia and the United States don't get along. But seeing as the two men really don't know each other other than through television, it remains to be seen whether or not how they would really feel about each other, since they both like to be, you know, the they both like to be the big dog in the room. It, it might be a bit difficult for the two to get along. Uh, we often talked, uh, and this will be the last question for you, Simon. We often talked that, uh, you know, until uh, 
Trump gets his true test of of, of a world issue or a situation like happened in Berlin, we're not going to really see what he's made of. Are we starting to see that now with his reaction to what happened in Berlin? I think to an extent we are. Uh, it's not decisive yet because he's not president. He doesn't have an official role yet to play, but I think we are starting to see it. I mean, we're about, we're a little bit, more than a month away from the inauguration, and now we're starting to see a little bit about how he responds to to world events, how he responds to to uh, comments by other world leaders, and I don't expect him to change his behavior or his uh, temperament tremendously in the next thirty days. So I think we can take this as an early indication how of how he will help behave at least in the short run, you know. Over time, over a couple of years, things may change more, but it's probably at this point, 30 days out, a, a pretty good indicator of, uh, of what we, we should expect in the near future. Well, 2017 is going to be fascinating. Simon Palomar has been with his Research Assistant Center for International Governance Innovation. Simon, thank you very much for the time and all you've contributed over the past year. Have yourself a great holiday. My pleasure. You too, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. When we had the premiere on the other day uh, and we were, uh, I was trying to hold her feet to the fire regarding uh, electricity, she, uh, again, tried to sort of stray away from that point and talk about what the government and the premiers are doing uh, in regard to trying to get a better health care deal for everybody. Uh, and it seemed like the provinces were quite united on this and were going to have strength in numbers and try to put some leverage, little uh, boots to the, to the federal government in regard to how much they get in transfer payments every year to fund health programs. Uh, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, one rogue province by the name of New Brunswick has, turns out, signed their own deal with the federal government, which has ticked off the other provinces. And now, uh, you know, there seems to be a, a break in the coalition here. Has the uh, prime minister divided and conquered here? And why would it, one province go rogue? To talk more on all of this, Peter Grafe is with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us at this time of year. We greatly appreciate this. So, Peter, why would it seem when the premiers were banded together and there's communication going on and it's a kumbaya moment and, you know, maybe they're arguing, but at least they're talking, what makes one province go rogue? Uh, well, they are able to cut themselves a better deal. <laughs> so I think uh, when all is said and done, the federal government uh, knows that one of the best ways to beat the provinces is to divide them and uh, you go after uh, one of the provinces that's the most cash-strapped and probably offer them a bit of a better deal than they would get uh, than if uh, all the provinces went together. So, I, I mean, in the short run, that seems to be uh, the dynamic that I see in, in, in what's happened here. Do we know the details of this deal? Is there something that we're missing here? Because it seems to be basically the same thing that everybody else had turned down before, no? Yeah, although, uh, I mean, I guess what's beneficial here for uh, New Brunswick is that if a better deal comes along, then they'd get a piece of the better deal. Wow. <laughs> How does that work? Uh, well, uh, it's a negotiation. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, again, the federal government then uh, gets a chance to divide the provinces, to, to go to the Canadian public and say, look, New Brunswick thinks this is okay. Why are the other provinces refusing to do that? 
uh, New Brunswick gets to see the money now, while the other provinces have to wait to see whether they can make a deal. So is this, uh, has the coalition broken down? Is it about forgetting union, uh, unity here? It's everyone out for themselves? Because well, once, the, once that has happened, I mean, really, what's the sense of being together on this? Uh, well, I mean, the federal government can't take that much credit for fixing health care if they've only done it in New Brunswick. Uh, and so as long as Ontario, Quebec, Alberta, British Columbia are standing outside of it, I mean, you're looking at about, what, 85-90% of the Canadian population. So, uh, I mean, in a sense, the provinces uh, lose a bit of negotiating leverage because they can't say, look, we're all agreed uh, on this. But at the end of the day, the federal government can't claim a huge win because uh, they're still in a situation where they want to take credit for somehow fixing home care uh, and long-term care, uh, and they aren't going to be able to do that if none of the other provinces agree. So I think... In a sense, we're still stuck in a stalemate. Uh, but, I mean, it's also a stalemate that maybe distracts us from some of the more important issues. I mean, Kathleen Wynne, as you pointed out, could be talking about the importance of getting this money for health care. But a lot of what's going to be happening in the future of our health care systems depends on how the provinces themselves manage, uh, particularly their relationships with the doctors and the nurses and the other health professionals who have a really strong place in the system. And if they're unable to really wrestle those uh, professionals to get change, uh, throwing more money or less money at the system isn't really making that much difference. Are the problems from province to province much different, though? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, uh, in, in 1960s, we developed a particular way of funding the healthcare system. I mean, doctors were always very powerful within uh, healthcare systems even before that. Uh, I think it sort of uh, structured a bunch of interests in the system in continuing to do things the way we do things. Now, I mean, provinces have been trying to change that, for instance, by moving to health teams, finding other ways to deliver services outside of hospitals. Um, but, I mean, most of them are working from the same basic architecture. So you're right, they have uh, fairly similar questions to deal with, but each of them is negotiating separately with their provincial doctors and provincial health professions. So was there a backdoor deal there uh, over and above what we're seeing? I mean, it seems New Brunswick basically agreed to everything that they had turned down, the provinces had turned down uh, before as a group. Will we ever know what these details are? Yeah, I was trying to find the agreement. Uh, I didn't look too hard, but it's not uh, obviously there. I mean, I suspect at some point it will have to be made public because part of the agreement and what the federal government was pushing for was for the provinces uh, to be transparent about where they used any new money. Uh, so it would be interesting to see what the details were around that. But then again, if it's only New Brunswick at the moment who's following the system, the federal government may have decided to uh, not push them that hard in terms of what they actually have to report around that. But uh, we haven't seen the details yet. Uh, I mean, presumably they will at some point because there's only uh, you know, a certain extent to which our governments like to keep these agreements entirely secret. So how long before the other provinces say, so that's how you're playing, uh, what's the backroom deal for us? Uh, it may not be that long, although most of them realize that they won't get that great a deal. I mean, I think what's interesting for New Brunswick and probably why New Brunswick act, acted now is that they want to see uh, the dollars right away. Hmm. Um, but ultimately, they're agreeing to a deal where the federal government's contribution to sort of the mainline health care services is going to decline as a proportion of total costs over time. So it will grow at best at the rate of, in, uh, of, the, uh, of the economy as a whole, while inflation in the health care sector is usually slightly higher than that. So 
uh, what we're going to see is a slight decrease in what the federal government's paying to the mainline services, and in a sense, they're taking that money and recycling it and saying, look, we're doing new things around home care, for instance. So, I mean, uh, in that sense, they've agreed they'll get the money now, but in the long run, it's not that interesting to them, as interesting to them. But again, this is, you know, how New Brunswick's kind of playing both sides and why the other provinces are unhappy, because the other provinces actually do get a slightly sweeter deal. I mean, they are pushing for like 5.2% rather than the 3.5% that the federal government was, was putting forward. You know, if they got something closer to 5%, then uh, New Brunswick would get it too. What do the other premiers say about that? I mean, you know, as, the, as Quebec's uh, health minister said, we're doing the heavy lifting and these guys are <laughs> going to get the result. Uh, and then, of course, the comment came from the New Brunswick premier that if we stuck our nose in Quebec's business, you know where that would go. So what's the feeling between the provinces now? Uh, I think not as good. <laughs> I mean, in a way, the federal government uh, have won at least a short game uh, of sowing disunity between the provinces and making it harder for the provinces to make the federal government look bad. I mean, uh, and, and say, well, ultimately the federal government's not doing its part, but they can say, but look, New Brunswick has decided to do this. In the longer game, though, it probably doesn't improve the trust between the federal government and the provinces. Uh, I mean, the other provinces will say, well, the federal government is, you know, not necessarily wanting to negotiate fairly. They're trying to break our common front. And in the long run, that's probably not great for us uh, as Canadians, uh, because in the lack or absence of trust, uh, the kind of deals that get struck are probably less good. So around this whole question of the provinces reporting to the federal government for what they're doing, you know, if the parties trust one another, it's not too hard to say, yeah, this is what we're spending it on, and we'll give, uh, we'll report on these specific indicators so we can see what kind of changes are coming. They trust each other; they can do that. If they don't trust each other, then the provinces try to do everything possible to hide that because they're afraid the federal government's going to use that information to make them look bad or play them off against each other or try to justify reducing money. And so they begin playing all kinds of games in terms of how they report things. So. Uh, in the short run, I think the federal government has done well in breaking uh, New Brunswick off as a negotiating strategy. In the long run, probably means we get uh, less good agreements between the federal government and the provinces. Uh, where does this leave New Brunswick? Good day for them. Are people there happy? Uh, I suspect most people in New Brunswick aren't following this news of the sort of axe grinding between the governments. But, uh, I mean, New Brunswick is a province with uh, heavy debt. Uh, an aging population, not the strongest economy, and so they're uh, a government that is looking for federal transfers as one way to deal with a tight fiscal situation. So for them, I think it's probably a good day in that they were able to cut themselves uh, a deal and get the, the funds flowing in the coming year uh, while still protecting themselves, so having this insurance policy that if the other provinces do better, well, then they'll get a piece of that. Uh, will the provinces remember this, both with the federal government and that there's cracks or leaks in the boat here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people who do intergovernmental uh, negotiations, I think, like to think of themselves as the sort of domestic diplomats. And, uh, I mean, they have very long memories about uh, different forms of treachery and betrayal uh, in various negotiations. So. I don't think it will do uh, wonders uh, for their relationships. But New Brunswick, again, because of its relatively uh, uh, impoverished status in Canada, has been a province that's often been seen as closer to the federal government and more willing to let the federal government come in uh, and try and do things uh, simply to be able to get their hand on the money. Before the election, Trudeau promised great, greater relations with the provinces and, and more discussion and consultation. Uh, is that honeymoon over now? 
Yeah, I think we're we're seeing that begin to come apart. I mean, there were some successes around, say, the uh, pension agreement early on. But, yeah, I think that's beginning to come apart. Uh, I mean, ultimately, a lot of these relationships have to do with the fact that the federal government doesn't have power in the Constitution over things like health care. And so to the extent that they get a say, it's because they're willing to uh, put Canadians' uh, money into the system. But in that uh, program that Trudeau and the Liberals ran on in 2015, they actually didn't have a lot of money behind commitments such as health care or child care. Uh, and so it was, I think, predictable that if they actually wanted to get something done, They'd either have to find the money, which they haven't done, or, or deal with a lot of conflict with the provinces saying, wait a second, this isn't your responsibility. If you want to be at the table, you have to bring some money. Do we need more federal government involvement in health care? Uh, they certainly are involved in other aspects of government. And considering the cost of this file, should they not be involved more? Should there not be some sort of national plan? Uh well, I guess we could think, well, what's the, what's the role of the federal government? The federal government wants to be seen as a leader who is somehow solving the problems uh, and imposing specific solutions. I, I think the federal government might actually have a better role if they play the role more of an information clearinghouse, seeing what the provinces are doing. And when they were promising things that the governments in the provinces were doing, uh, you know, some, some new agreements, for instance, between the Alberta government and the doctors and nurses, uh, that might allow for you know greater efficiencies in primary care that we saw. I mean, maybe the role for the federal government is actually to be out and saying, "Hey, look at this! Can we see this in other provinces?" But I mean, so much of health care is negotiated and delivered provincially that the federal government, in some ways, is uh, is trying to find a reason to be involved, but has very little expertise uh, in terms of the actual delivery of health services. And where they do have roles, uh, for instance, in First Nations communities, uh, they really underperform the provinces. So. Mm. Uh, I think in many ways we might do well as Canadians to actually see a smaller role for the federal government and maybe say it might be much better as being one of finding best practices and finding ways uh, to make those happen and to encourage provinces who are, are undertaking some of the more difficult transitions to bend the cost curve down uh, and make our health care more affordable. All right, Peter, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts uh, before we go for the uh, 2016, uh, your thoughts on Trump's latest uh, tweet, which involves uh, perhaps torquing up the U.S.'s uh, nuclear capability. Uh, prior to the election, the Democrats would, would say that they were very uh, concerned that someone like Trump would ha be so close to the trigger of the, the nuclear arsenal. Uh, were they right? Uh, how do, how do we move forward with a president who really, when you think about it, thank goodness, only has 140 characters in Twitter? Uh, yeah, I wish I had an answer for you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it is a kind of terrifying possibility to have someone who in many ways is uh, maybe the least prepared president in my lifetime uh, and the least willing to worry. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, we don't expect presidents to be experts in everything, but we hope that they then rely on experts to deal with uh, those situations. But in this situation, it seems we have someone who's completely unversed in diplomacy, uh, unversed in international strategic uh, relationships, uh, making up decisions on the fly. And uh, I think it does make for a very unstable situation, both not knowing what the United States itself is going to do, uh, but also for many other countries, when they see the hierarchy of power, the, the, the state at the, the top of the global food chain, if you like, 
having unstable uh, leadership, uh, they may be more likely to test out limits. And so we get a lot of instability in other places too, not simply from the United States, but from people not thinking that the United States is going to act like it traditionally has. So uh, it's a bit worrisome going forward in 2017. So a few days ago, uh, last week, everyone was concerned about uh, Trump and Putin Putin being buddy-buddy, and especially with the appointment of the Exxon guy, who's got a bromance going on with Putin. Uh, Now it seems as if we're torquing up the the nuclear arsenal. What is it? Is the U.S. and Russia friends or not? Uh, I would say not. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, again, uh, I mean, it's hard to know where, where these relationships go when uh, the sort of presumed stability of American strategic interests uh, no longer seem quite so stable. Uh, and so uh, I think we're in a period where we also have to see how world leaders, you know, in Russia and elsewhere respond to this instability, uh, what parts of it they believe and what parts of it they see to be as kind of dangerous bravado, but ultimately not really changing the U.S.'s uh, strategic positions. Peter Grape has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, thanks again for the time and uh, all you contribute to the show over the course of the last year. We greatly appreciate it, and have a great holiday. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.